0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Okay, this is the second sermon in a series that we're doing in the month of January. It's called Get in the Word, and I started it last week, and I am, no wonder... I was like, why am I? I feel like I'm crowded. i got to scoot that back some. I, I, this, this sermon is um, unapologetically directed towards one thing, and, and that is I want you to be so in love, so um, blown away by the beauty of the gospel that you can't help but read it. I know in my own life what I need on a daily basis is to be reminded of the beautiful realities of the gospel. And I need to center myself on a truth that is unchangeable, that is not fading away, that is, that, that is a sure thing. And that truth is found in the text of Scripture. I know that as a church, as community Bible church, the expectation is that when you come in here on a Sunday morning and we have a sermon, that that sermon is based upon a text of Scripture. And we do that every single week. We open up the Bible. It's not my words. It's not my wisdom. It's not my thoughts. It's the Word of God that I get as a pastor to herald, to communicate the the, the beautiful realities of the gospel. But I also know something's true about the Bible. And that is... It can be the most assumed tool in our Christian toolbox. It can be the thing that because it's been a part of our lives from the very beginning, maybe you're the church kid like myself that you've always known the Bible, that you learned from a very early age, these 66 books of the Bible, and you might be able to say the minor prophets in order still. I struggle with that sometimes. Or maybe you were saved late in life. Or maybe this is the first time you've ever been to church and you're going to walk in and you're like, I don't know anything about the Bible. What I know is that the Bible can be so easily assumed and, and, and wrongly assumed of what the purpose of the Bible is. Just a personal story of mine. I love and loved to take things apart as a kid. My, my, my parents were so frustrated with me because if my dad had something in the garage that was, a, 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 was mechanical in any way, shape, and form, I would try to take it apart. And I would try to, t- to take it apart because I wanted to learn how it worked. If I'm gonna use something, I wanna learn what it does. I wanna learn how it does the thing that it does. And so I took many things apart. Now you can guess the frustration was I didn't wanna put it back together because once I took it apart, I knew how it worked. So then I just shoved it in a corner somewhere. I still kind of do that. I love to know how things work and operate. I want to see how the parts move, um, move together to create whatever the the use is that 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 it's it's created for. But as a Christian, even as a pastor, I had to do that same thing with the Bible. For a long time in my Christian life, this is what I ended with in last week's sermon, so I'm going to pick up in the conversation exactly where we ended. For a long time in my Christian life, I assumed what the purpose of the Bible was. I assumed that it was given to me to make me a better person. I assumed that the Bible was there so that I would know what I need to journey through my Christian life. I assumed so many things, And, and that's okay for a while but then I got to this point when I had to use the Bible and I had to ask the question, well, what is the point of this thing? What are we supposed to do with this book? You see, Christians are called people of the book. That's what we've been known for from the very beginning. We stand in a long line of people that when we appropriately blame the Bible for how we live and operate, but so much can go unsaid and assumed about this book. And I fear that because the Bible has been a constant presence in our life, it's vulnerable for misunderstanding and even misinterpretation. And so one of the things that I want to do in this sermon series, as we are highlighting the importance of the Bible, and I will say uh, my, my heart has tried to protect us from, go, from using the Bible in the wrong ways, is to not assume some things in the sermon series and to not assume what the purpose of the Bible is about. You see, the Bible is appropriately promoted as the book that will change your life. The Bible is, is said by pastors everywhere. In fact, I even declared it last week that you need the Bible to make it through life. And yet, if we don't preface some things and if we don't qualify some things, the beauty of the gospel can be misunderstood and used as a weapon of misery. We can misuse this tool that's put in our Christian toolbox. A couple of years ago, I, I was watching, I don't know, YouTube, some, some social media, and this was back in the days when fail videos were the biggest thing on the Internet. And one of the fail videos that I saw was this construction site. And there was this guy who was trying to knock down this concrete wall, and, and one construction worker handed up a, a, a jackhammer to this other construction worker. And you would assume we all know what a jackhammer does, right? Well, this guy didn't. He handed up this jackhammer to this one construction worker and all of a sudden you could see this look on this construction worker's face like what am I supposed to do with this? I mean it's got a it's got a, like a, a metal tip on the end maybe that's for chipping away. So he started to use this giant jackhammer as a giant chisel manually shoving this tool into the wall. I mean a jackhammer weighs like 100 pounds. You could tell he's just like Ugh, I gotta do this. And this other construction worker that just handed him the tool was like dude what are you doing? And, and he like Shows are like you got to plug it in. So the guy plugged it in and then he went back to shoving this jackhammer in the wall. And this other construction worker assumed that his friend knew what to do with this self-explanatory tool. But it wasn't until he walked over and he grabbed the machine from him. And he put it up against the wall. And he pulled the trigger that you could see the look on this guy's face. He's like, oh, I've been using that wrongly. It's not supposed to hurt that bad. It's not supposed to be that much work. I'm not supposed to just hurl this at the wall under my own strength. This thing clearly has a purpose. I think that we can make that same mistake with the Bible. We can treat it as a tool that we don't know how to use it. And therefore, when we think of the Bible... We don't think of it as this glorious message of the gospel that brings a bomb to our, to our weary souls. We think of it as this weapon of misery that just asks us to do stuff. And so, I know for some of you, when, I, when we passed out the 365-day reading plan last week, or when I start to say that you, you should read your Bible, the message that's in your brain is another pastor telling me something to do. And I fear that, and I think that the reason we have that response is because we've assumed some things. We've been taught what the Bible says. Like we've had passages of Scripture explained. We've memorized verses in wana. We've applied certain applications to our life. I know for me, growing up, I knew so many details about the Bible. I could recite all 66 books. I was... Familiar with the structures and themes and content. I, as I said, I even had a piece of paper that declared that I had a degree in the subject of the Bible, but I had missed something. I had missed a huge thing. Somebody handed me a tool, and I didn't know how to use it because I knew what the Bible said, but I missed what the Bible was about. I missed how all of the individual verses and and characters and stories related to the one singular message of the Bible frankly, the difference between what the Bible says and what, and what the Bible is about, I overlooked it for a long time. And so, as we journey in this series of looking through the Bible, I don't want to make that same mistake. Now, I know some of you are going, I think I've heard this from Ryan before, and you have. Because this is one of my most exciting topics. This, this, this topic thrills my soul because I know for me, when I finally understood how to use the Bible, when I finally understood how to take it apart and how to put it back together, it revived my soul because instead of, again, using these words of Scripture as a weapon of misery against myself and against you, I saw it as the beautiful reality that it is. So, I'm going to take for the morning, and we're not necessarily going to look at one particular text of Scripture, though we will reference some. I want to look at the whole of Scripture. Now, I'm going to preface this again. If you are visiting with us for the first time, this is going to be a little different sermon. And all of January is going to be a little different sermon because normally we are expositing a text of scripture where we open it up and I say the most important words that I say on Sunday morning is a text of scripture because it is the only thing that is infallible and true and, and, and ultimately right. And so this morning is a little different because we're not going to be expositing a text of scripture, but I do think it's important as believers for us to stop and for us to look at the whole, for us to answer that important question of what's the purpose of this thing so that we don't wrongly assume how to use it. Now, I shouldn't have been surprised that I was wrongly assuming how to use the Bible because we're not really taught how to view the Bible. The majority of believers have, really haven't been empowered to answer this simple question, what's the point of the Bible? Because our primary focus is always on how believers apply the Bible? I mean, the focus of how is a far easier question for us to consider. There's, there are um, so many stories and so many details that we could look at with that. So one of the greatest ironies of being the people of the book is that we can come to struggle with figuring out how to look at this, what to interpret out of this, what this is about. And as I said, I think we come by this honestly. Think about the way that the Bible is normally presented to people. Think about the way that the Bible is normally presented in, I would say, broader evangelicalism. It's a self-help book, is it not? It talks about how to have a personal ethics, what, what, what to do and not to do. We, we see that this book covers what, what a rich religious life looks like. We can see, and people have pulled out how to be personally blessed by it. We can see this this book talks about how to deter sin, we can see that so many people point us towards how to use the Bible to make our lives better. But as I said, I think that just turns the Bible into a weapon of misery. It might surprise you to hear this morning, these 66 books, the reason that God gave us this is not to make us better people. It's not for self-improvement. It's not to improve mankind. That's not, at, that's not the main focus of this text. That's not the main focus of the Bible. That's not why God gave us this beautiful reality. Obviously, that's part of the Bible. I'm not going to say that that's not in it. But we, our improvement is not at the center. You see, the particular message of Christianity goes far beyond personal improvement. And by having this improvement-focused approach to the Bible, the Bible has been wrongly applied. It's been almost stripped apart and served up a la carte to us all. It's kind of been treated like the Marvel series. It's got all these really, really cool characters, really cool storylines, really cool actions. And if we could make money by pulling out one of these characters and having this sub-series... Like I was looking at Disney Plus the other day and I, was, and I hadn't been on there in forever. I was like, when did the Hawkeye series come out? I know I'm way behind the times, I'm sure. But you can see where they're like, oh, people love this. We can make money on it. Let's, let's go pursue this one angle. The Bible's kind of been done that way. Where it's been, it, it, it's been divorced from its main central message and therefore it has just confuses all of us of what in the world is the Bible about? So here's the question that I want us to consider for a minute. It's a question that it was asked of me early in my pastoral ministry as a student ministries pastor, and it was the passage, it was the question rather, that caused me to really start down this journey of realizing, I don't know what to do with the Bible. And here's the question, why was the Bible given? Why did God write the Bible? Why did God offer us the Bible? Why did God use, this is maybe, maybe the formal question, Why did God use 40 men over thousands of years in three different languages to explain all the details contained in this book? Why did God spend the time, effort, and energy to offer us the information contained in this canon of Scripture? Why give us the Bible? A student asked me that question. They had no idea what what they did in my own mind at that moment. I was like, "Uh, I don't know. I didn't say that. Pastors aren't supposed to say that. So many faithful Bible saturated Christians have struggled with this simple question, though, because they've been stuck thinking that they look at how to use the Bible in that self help format, but they don't ever ask the question of why was the Bible given? I want to give you some popular answers to that question, though. And maybe you might find that how you're trying to answer that, what you're thinking about at this moment are, are, are in this. I actually think there's kind of three popular ways that people answer that question of what is the purpose of the Bible? Why was the Bible written? First answer is, is an apologetic view. They would say, well, the reason that the Bible was written, the reason that we have the Bible is to prove the existence of God. The Bible was given so that we can know that God exists and glorify him accordingly. Sounds really good, right? I mean, it, 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 there's definitely a, a, a piece of it. But they would say that, that the details contained within are primarily carry an apologetic bent uh, so that we can know that God exists, so that we can know the, these details of the Bible. But here's the thing. We don't need the Bible for everything. The Bible even says that. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I did say that we are going to reference Scripture because this is not just me up here. This is, this is truth. If you carry the apologetic bent that the Bible proves the existence of God, that before the pages of Scripture, people didn't know about God, then Paul is about to prove us all wrong. It says this in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness... And unrighteousness of men, and who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them in his word. No, no. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that God has made, so that they are without excuse now, we can say this side of the canon of Scripture being closed, aha, see, the Bible talks us that they are without excuse. No, this is Paul referencing before any words of Scripture were ever written down, we could see the existence of God. Before any words of Scripture were ever written down, man was liable for their rejection of him. Just... Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Bible must have been written for something greater than just telling us about God's existence because the Bible itself says We don't even need the Bible to prove God's existence. That's number one. Number two, kind of the second most popular view out there of the point of the Bible, is the theological view. Or the other way to say this is the kingdom view, that the Bible was given to us so that we know how to set up and how to create the kingdom of God. Jesus clearly came to establish his kingdom. That's solidly in the Gospels. Jesus clearly came to talk to us about how God's kingdom operates compared to man's kingdom operating. But the problem is, if you think that the point of the Bible, that the emphasis of the Bible, that the focus of the Bible is towards this theological or kingdom view, the the issue that we have, the primary question that kind of stumps us all, is why did Christ first come as a lamb led to the slaughter? and not on the white horse wielding his sword. Yes, he's coming. His kingdom is clearly going to be established. But did Jesus really have to die to build his kingdom? Jesus is God. He created us from the word of his mouth. He's all powerful. We're not that strong. We're not that big. He could have overwhelmed us at any moment and created his kingdom. He didn't need to die. So if the Bible is written for us from this theological or kingdom focus, if that's everything that this Bible is given to us for, and we're going to read everything through that kingdom lens, I think we're going to miss some elements. Like, why did Christ first come as a suffering servant and not as the king that he is? Then there's the third view, as we're going through this rather quickly. And I think this is the most popular view. And I also think this is the view that preaches the best. As a pastor, it would be so easy to take this view, because I would have hosts of sermons forever. Here's this view. It's the ethical view. The Bible was given to us to make us better people. The Bible was given to us so that we have examples to follow. The Bible was given to us so that the stories of the men and women that contained within can be our role models. The Bible was given to us so that we can live God-honoring lives and, and, we, and therefore we can exemplify the attributes of the biblical characters. I mean, think about this. When I say it's the most popular, you've heard sermons like this. I, I don't even know what Christian tradition you've, you have, uh, have spent time in. You've heard stories like this. I mean, this is why David has been set up as, as the model for a being the man after God's own heart. This is why Nehemiah, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's touted as, the, as exemplifying godly leadership. Esther's pulled out and said, this is the example of true faith. Jabez. Haven't heard that name in a while, right? Think about the late 90s, early 2000s. There's a little book that was passed around, The Prayer of Jabez. Jabez demonstrates what a faithful prayer life is like. Moses, his burning bush. I've literally heard I would say this sermon multiple times. Moses' burning bush is the example of a biblical decision-making moment. All of these characters are pulled out of the text of scripture and are offered to you and I and say, be like these people, therefore you will be good. Where's Christ in that? Because I don't need Christ to be like David. I don't need Christ to be like Esther. I don't need Christ to be like Nehemiah. One of the, as I said last week, I'm gonna reference this thing again, that I listen to podcasts on a pretty regular basis. I found this new podcast recently that I've been, um, I'm walking my dog, I've been binging, It's, it's fascinating. It's called Founders. And it's a guy out there who is reading um, biographies of notable individuals. And what he does is he sits down on like an uh, hour-long format and and reads to the listener. So it's like I'm sitting across the table from him, and he will read portions of it, and he'll talk about what he's learning from these books. So it's dissecting these two, four, 600-page biographies and then offering it to the listener, and his whole goal is to, uh, you know, as you're listening to these other people and what they have done and how they've overcome their struggles and with all these lessons that you've learned, that, that, that you can learn from them. And it kind of dawned on me that we're, we can so easily turn the Bible into that same format. I'm listening to the podcast because the information I'm getting from it is fascinating, but it's not going to save me. In the same way, I can read the Bible and look at all of these examples, these great examples, these these faithful examples, all these lessons learned, and yet in the end, it's not going to save me. You see, what each of these approaches does is it mists the central theme of the Bible. The Bible cannot merely be a photo album of men and women's faithfulness. The Bible has to be something more. And so, again, as that question was asked to me, what's the point of the Bible, I realized that I had to find a different equation. I had to find a better equation. I had to find a better answer, rather, to the equation that I had been thinking about. And the equation that I was struggling with is whatever the point of the Bible is has to be broad enough to include everything and yet specific enough to define it. And frankly, there's only one option capable of answering that formula. And we don't get to the answer to that formula by asking what is Scripture used for? Rather, it comes by asking why was Scripture the tool that God determined to hand us? And the answer is not found in a popular view of the Bible. I think the answer to that formula is found in a historic view of the Bible. You see, the Bible is a multifaceted book with a very simple message. From beginning to end, old or new, I don't care if you're talking about Joshua, Moses, Jonah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, John. One singular message. And the, answer, and the, the message is this. It's redemption. It's the gospel. It's what propels me forward as a herald of, the, of, of, of Christ. When I open up scripture, I think, where's redemption in this? Because the story of redemption, the story of grace, the story of the gospel is at the center of everything. From the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, that's the gospel. That starts it. And this thread is contained within all of Scripture leading up to Revelation. The whole of Scripture is about redemption. The Reformers called this the redemptive historical view of Scripture. That redemption is broad enough to include everything found in Scripture, and yet it is specific enough to define everything. Here's how the Westminster Catechism describes this. Because as the Reformers, again, I said this is a historic view, as they were looking at the Old Testament and New Testament as they were answering this question themselves, what they declared was that whatever the answer is has to be clear enough and yet specific enough to contain everything and here's how the Westminster catechism describes scripture and in particular this redemptive historic view it says this all script, all things in scripture are not unlike plain in and of themselves nor are all things clear unto all yet those things that are necessary to be known believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place in scripture or other that not only the learned But the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. If I can put that in modern English, because I know that that's, uh, you know, this was written a couple hundred years ago. Essentially what it says is when you look at Scripture from beginning to end, from any person, any story, what you can see in it is Christ. He's the shadow that's been there from the very beginning. We see his substance come out in the Gospels, which is why I can't wait to get back into the Gospel of John in a couple of weeks. But that shadow that's been there from the very beginning. Genesis 3.15, the first Gospel, the the Proto-Evangelion. I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. Your son, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. You can trust that. That this problem that was created is sin. I'm gonna send somebody that's gonna remedy that. And in the unfolding and the progressive manner of redemption as it's unfolding throughout Scripture, we see that one promise come to light in Christ. And then what we get to see is that everything that the Old Testament was the shadow of, all of those types and shadows that we see throughout, we then get to see the substance in Christ. And then what do we get to see in the New Testament? As these New Testament writers just constantly be going, see, Jesus in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament. Paul, essentially, his message is this. The person that you were waiting for back then is Jesus, and you can trust that. Everything is pointed towards Christ. That's why we started with 1 Peter. You can turn, once again, to 1 Peter. I can't help but get away from Scripture because I'm a preacher at heart. This is why when Peter opens up this gospel, just like Paul, so overwhelmed by the glories of Christ and the glories of the gospel, he doesn't doesn't offer his his reader some apologetic understanding or some ethical understanding or, or some theological understanding. Listen, just listen again to what he offers to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, this gospel reality, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the testing of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen to this. Concerning this salvation, it's nothing new. Concerning this salvation, this wasn't plan B. Concerning the salvation, it's not to make you a better person. No, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What's that mean? The prophets of old were looking for Christ. Imagine that with Eve. Cain killed Abel. And so Adam and Eve, the moment that the gospel was given to them, Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send somebody. Your son is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Eve and and Adam were wondering, who's it going to be? Cain and Abel are born. Is it one of them? Well, Cain kills Abel, not Abel. He's dead. Not Cain. He killed somebody. Probably not the guy God's going to use. And so then it's like, is it Seth? Is Seth going to be the person? Is it some other son? Is it Seth's son? Is it Noah? Is it Abraham? Is it David? I mean, you fill in the blank. You go through the genealogy that we got to look at in the, in the Advent, and you could ask the question for each of these, who is it? It's all pointed towards the Messiah. It's all pointed towards Christ. It's all pointed towards redemption. Everyone knew from beginning to end, somebody is coming to remedy this. That is what Peter is talking about. It goes, the prophets of old understood this. They were prophesying, going, redemption. Redemption redemption's at the heart of this prophecy. Who is going to come? And then finally it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, send from heaven things into which angels long to look. We're blessed to live this side of Christ. We're blessed to live this side of the New Testament. What I call you to, I should say that what God calls you to, what scripture calls you to is no different than what Adam and Eve were called to. Faith. God is going to send somebody to remedy, to offer us reconciliation, to save us for our sins. That's what Eve trusted in, faith. They had faith. God's going to do something. What do we trust in? Faith. That Christ did it. We, we know more details. But at the heart, at the foundation, it's still the same. It's, it's faith. But the faith that we have is not that we've been a good person. It's not that we followed after the examples. It's not that we know the theological details of God. It's not that we've unpacked and can, and, and, and can give the exegetical arguments for various passages. No, it's the faith that what we needed the most, a savior, the thing that we could not produce, a savior was offered to us in Christ. What's the point of the Bible? Well, very simply, Jesus. Maybe a little broader, the reconciliation of sinners by the work of Christ's perfect life. What's the underlying thread in it all? Why was the Bible given to us? So that sinners might know how they can be reconciled to a holy God. As you're reading the Bible, old or new, whatever genre, whatever passage, whatever story, I'm earnest for you to have that in your mind as you're reading it. How does this strengthen my understanding of the gospel? How, why did God put this story in the Bible for me to better understand the gospel? What do I need to know about this detail, this person, this episode to strengthen my understanding of the gospel? That changes how we approach things. Like, I'm currently reading through Job because that's where we're at in, in this reading plan. Thinking, God, what do I need to know about Job's life? The tr- I want to say train wreck, but the, the pain that was there so that my faith in Christ is great, better strengthened. What do I need to know about Job's life so that I can better trust knowing that God is good? What do I need to know about Job's life so that when there are these passages about being potter and clay and I'm just a lump and God can do whatever, that I can rest and know that I am merely your creature and you are my creator and everything you do is good. It changes it. Instead of these words, instead of these stories, instead of this book being this weapon of misery that can be wielded against us about how to be a better person and you need to, you know, do X, Y, and Z to honor, it it changes it. Instead of being this weapon of misery, it turns into this bomb to our souls that the thing that we needed most was offered to us in Christ. And so as you're hearing me have this passage on this sermon series, I'm preaching the Bible, and it it rubs you the wrong way, maybe, maybe it's because you've forgotten what the point of the Bible is. It's not to make you a better person. It's to declare to you how the perfect person came to earth, lived the perfect life, died the necessary death, so that you and I, broken as we are, might be reconciled to a holy God. We're going to pick on the, the, we'll pick this back up next week. And, and um, I've got some other, I would say, tools or systems or frameworks that we can use to appropriately interpret Scripture. Because even knowing that, obviously it's a detailed book, so I'm excited to unpack those. But just as we turn our attention towards communion this morning the the heart of the bible is the heart of communion what we could not do god did by sending a son his perfect son to take on flesh to die the death that was required of us and to live the life that was required of us and to offer that to us by grace through faith and so if you're here this morning and you are a believer we would invite you to take this table with us to celebrate that what God sees is not our brokenness. What's, what's gonna get us into heaven is not our faithfulness, but our faith in the one true perfect Savior. But if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe this is the first time here at church, maybe a, a, a friend brought you and this is all suspect or, or confusing, I would ask that you just let these elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take them to these elements to fill ourselves up or to save ourselves, we take them as a celebration that what I need most, my only hope in life and death is Christ. And God has graciously offered that to us. But if you do pass the elements by, I would love to talk with you after the service because I would love to talk more about faith in Christ and about our glorious savior because he will change your life. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for the truths of scripture that we can approach every story, every word, every book, and not see it as something that we have to accomplish in order to be saved, but that we can see it as this glorious story of grace. Lord, protect us from using the Bible against ourselves and against others as this weapon of misery. Protect us from reading these stories and thinking, We've checked the box. We've been like David. We've, we've been like Nehemiah. We've been like Esther. We've been like Jabez. Because Lord, they even needed Christ. Lord, use us as messengers of your amazing gospel wherever we go. That the only message that's on our lips is, is Christ and Christ alone. That he is our only hope in life and death. Lord, be with us now as we take your table in your son's name, amen.